Lincoln, you want to come too? Come on. Roy Hester will be reading our passage this morning, so turn to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. King's kids, pay attention. I'll let you go in just a minute. We're going to read the Bible, and then when we're done, I'll let you go to King's kids. So here we go. We're in Philippians chapter 2. Can you see over there? There you go. Keep it. Verse 1 through 11. Therefore... If any of you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being in one spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interest of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found sorry, in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in, an, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Amen. King's kids, second grade on down, you're out of here. Yay. Molly and Gray are ready to uh, entertain you, keep you busy, teach you the Bible. So if I ever wear you out in here, you need a more age-appropriate lesson. That's your opportunity. So Philippians chapter 2, that passage we just read, um, I already think it is the crown jewel of this particular book, Philippians, but the more and more I'm reading it, it is rising higher and higher in my appreciation of Paul's teachings. Uh, I said it in Sunday school this morning, and I, I really mean it. I don't think Paul ever sat down and just winged it. He has meditated and prayed and taught through these things that he's writing down in these letters many times over and for many, probably hundreds of hours. These words are carefully crafted, full of meaning to him first and then expressed with even more meaning to people he knows. He's writing this letter to people he genuinely knows, loves, and cares about. These are not generic doctrinal letters. These are letters from his heart to theirs. He loves them. He is willing to pour out his guts for them. He bared his back. He was falsely jailed for these Philippians in their city, in their face. 
They love him back. Chapter 1 is full of greetings, gratitude. He recalls his own personal circumstances of being in prison, of suffering for the name of Christ. And in chapter 2, he turns the corner and he makes this letter more about them, us. In chapter 2, verse 2, he opens with a command, make my joy complete. The title of this lesson today is Commanded to Change. The command is in verse 2. We're going to flesh it out a little more today in verses 5 through 8. But he is commanding them to change. Make my joy, my joy in you complete by, and he just says it, by being of the same mind. That's his command. Paul wants those Christians to fill up, increase, and improve, and expand his own joy over them by them doing something. By them, he says, being of the same mind. Now, this is written to a body of Christians. He's asking this church, commanding this church, telling this church, here's how you can make me happier, more joyful over you, over your salvation, by you being of the same mind, purpose, and reason. Chapter 2, verse 2 is a command for them to be a church of the same mind. Write that down. And he starts to flesh that out. Verses 3 and 4, he puts a lot of meat on those bones. Here's the bones. Be a church of the same mind. Okay, what's that going to look like? Here's some muscle to put on those bones. Regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do nothing from selfish ambition. Do nothing from empty conceit, but with humility of mind. There's that mindedness again. Be of the same mind. What kind of mind? A mind of humility. Let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Do not only or merely or just look out for your own personal needs. Paul understands you need to look out for your own personal needs. He doesn't say stop everything you're doing and only meet the needs of others. He doesn't say that. He says don't just look out for your own needs. To the Thessalonians, he's going to say if a man doesn't work, he shouldn't eat. He's going to say go to work so that you have some for yourself and you have extra to give. There it is. You have enough for self, and then you have enough to give. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Regard one another as more important. And today in verse 5, he's given us the command. The exhortation was last week, or the week before. This week, he gives us the epitome of, the prime example, the absolute number one thing that comes into his mind when he says, have the same mind of humility for one another, he goes to what is his best hand, his only hand. He goes to Jesus. He lays it out. 
for all the world to see. For this church to know it's not about him, it's not about them. Everything he's telling them, he's tying it directly to Jesus Christ. Here is your example. Verse 5. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but instead emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Here's Christ, not reaching, but serving, to the point that he is, he even dies open-handed empties himself, dies empty. That is the example of the like mind. In your notes, by the word attitude, this is the New American Standard, that word attitude is mind. It is thought, the thought process. It's the same word from verse 2 command, where he says, have the same mind. Verse 5 is, this mind. He could have said in verse 2, it could be translated in verse 2, have the same attitude. And then it would match up in verse 5. This attitude, don't miss that. He did give us some examples. Don't just live for yourselves, but put other people first. And he steps back. He says, let me drop this on you. The mind that you're supposed to have for one another is the mind of Jesus himself. He's given us the highest ideal, the highest target possible. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. He existed in the form of God. What are some ways Jesus evidenced that he was in the form of God? of God, that he was God. What are some of the things he did? One, he was forgiving people of their sin. Write that down. He was forgiving people. He was healing people. He was teaching people like nobody else had ever taught because he was teaching them from personal first-hand knowledge of God the Father because he is the Son. His teaching was at a different level. He wasn't forgiving like a priest, where the priest would say, come, do this, go through the law, do that. Now, now I can pronounce you forgiven, not Jesus. He could stare you down, see what you were thinking, and either rebuke you for your pride or say to you, your sins are forgiven. And that ticked off some people, like, that's blasphemy. Only God can do that. Yeah, exactly. Like, that's the point. That's what he is saying. That's why he is doing it. He is in the form of God. Rebuking, teaching, healing, forgiving. Yet, although he existed in the form of God and we saw glimpses of God, 
He did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Grasping is humanity's basic sin. Grasping is seeing that which is good and taking it for yourself. Oh, look, the tree. Surely you won't die. And she saw that the tree was good for food, took, ate, and her husband ate with her. David saw Bathsheba as she was beautiful, took and committed adultery and murdered her husband. Every instance of human sin and pride and selfishness is an example of us grasping for what either we shouldn't have or grasping for it out of turn and out of place. Every lie that is told is grasping for a different reality than the truth. Every sexual sin is somebody grasping for something out of the order God says to do it. Sexual contact is only valid between a husband and a wife. Everything else is grasping. Everything else. Stealing. Yeah, that's pretty obvious. I see, I want, I grasp. And so when we look at Jesus, somebody who was with God from eternity past, God asked him to go love the world and give his life. Jesus did not grasp at his divinity and say, no, I'm not going. He wasn't holding on. No, you can't send me down there. Jesus opened his hand and said, I will do the will of the Father. And the whole time he was on earth, he wasn't reaching back. He lived open-handed, emptied himself. That's what the next verse says. He did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself took the form of a slave doing the will of God. That word emptied is the Greek word kenosis, and it opens up a huge box of theological discussion. But at its most basic meaning, it means to set aside your basic rights. Jesus emptied himself now listen clearly to me. He did not stop being the Son of God. Even John 3.16 maintains, For God so loved the world that God the Father gave us the Son, the only begotten, totally unique Son of God. He maintains that uniqueness. He did not become the Son of God when He was born. He did not become the Son of God when the Spirit came upon Him at baptism. He's always been the Son of God, always and forever but he emptied himself. He set aside some of his basic deity rights. Remember when Moses went up and spent 40 days and nights with God and his face was glowing and he came down and the people said, we can't handle the truth. <laughs> and he veiled. That's what Jesus did. In coming from God to us, Jesus veiled, set aside some of his basic rights. Jesus limited himself to a singular point 
geographically. He was no longer able to be everywhere. He limited himself mentally. I only know the things that God is going to let me know. When, is, when are you coming back? And Jesus would honestly say, that's not up to me. That's up to the Father. He, how could you not know? You're the Son of God. He was veiling, setting aside his rights. Here's why. Not grasping, but coming to God with open hand. God, what do you want me to know? How do you want me to live? And that is how he is our chief example of what it really means to be human. Not grasping, but content with whatever God gives you from day to day. Setting aside, have you set aside your basic rights? I'm winging it for just a second here. You are not a Christian. You are not born again until there's a moment in your life where you come to God open-handed and you say, I can't do this. I'm dead in my sins. I'm coming to you, God. Help. I need grace. I need forgiveness. That's where we start. And a child can do that. But that's where we start. And we're supposed to live the rest of our lives like that. Open-handed to God the Father. Willing to accept whatever he brings into our life. What did God bring into Jesus' life? Few enemies? Check. People misunderstand him? Check. Parents misunderstand him? Check. Brothers and sisters misunderstand him? Check. Pharisees accusing him of sin check romans stripping him naked humiliated check beating him tearing the skin off his back check crucifying him check those are the things god gave him jesus gave god his life and god said i could do something with that You know what God did with Jesus' open-handedness? He changed eternity. You, in God's hands, can also have an eternal impact. Not you reaching, you waiting. He emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, verse 7, and being made in the likeness of men, What is the likeness of mankind, of humanity? What is the likeness? What does it mean to be a human? It means to be a little lower than the angels, according to the Psalms. Lesser than a spiritual being. I'm going to call you a dirt bag with the breath of life breathed into you. Dirt, valuable dirt. God's creation Ashes to ashes, dust to dust. Oh, but what God can do with that dust. Limited and dependent. That's the word I want you to write down. What does it mean to really be a human? It should mean you are dependent upon God. Jesus yielded to his human limitations in time and space and knowledge. He limited himself to only doing those things which pleased the Father. 
We can do that. That's what it means to have his mindset, his attitude. Verse 8, being found in appearance as a man. By the way, if you would have put Jesus in a lineup of 10 Jewish men, there would have been nothing to distinguish him as the Son of God. I don't think you'd have, you have a 10% chance to pick him out. It would be random. He wouldn't be glowing. Probably, definitely not dressed in all white with a purple sash. Not six foot two with blue eyes. He was nobody. Average height for a man that period of history, that part of the world, five, six. Probably wearing a turban, greasy, long hair, unkept, untrimmed beard, dirty feet, dirty fingernails. You wouldn't know till he opened his mouth and the words came forth. I think of the road to Emmaus. They didn't know till he prayed. Whoa, this guy knows God. Check. With open-handedness, God brings a lot of pain and suffering, but he never brings it without himself. You always get God too. That's the beauty of the mind of Christ. That's what he knew that we haven't quite got yet. That when you open yourself to God, yes, you are opening yourself to a lot of circumstances that are out of your control. I got a newsflash for you. They're all out of your control anyway. You're just acting like you know what's going on. You don't. So stop pretending. Yield to God every single moment of every single circumstance. Being found in appearance as a man, what did Jesus do in his state of dependence, his state of veiling his divinity? He, verse 8, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, and we are ramping up for Easter. It is the greatest holiday on planet Earth to celebrate the resurrection of our Lord from the dead. He defeats everything that is against us. That's power. That's good. The cross is an emblem of victory now. Not of death. Not of losing. But of overcoming. And uh, please don't let me see you wear a crucifix with Jesus on it. He's not there anymore. The cross is empty. We don't crucify him over and over again. That's to trample the grace of God underfoot. He's gone. He's in heaven. He's eagerly on the edge of his seat, waiting for the Father to say, go, done. That's about it. That's a twinkling of an eye. He is ready to come back when the Father says, Jesus already did his part. My job, it is finished. What did, what did God do when Jesus ascended? back into heaven what did God the Father do we'll get there 
So he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. And I had this thought this week. Write this down. He humbled himself his entire life. Not just at the end. He humbled himself to be born. He humbled himself to wear diapers. He humbled himself to let a young teenage mother who probably didn't know what she was doing to feed him and to clothe him. He humbled himself to grow up in the backwaters of Nazareth. He humbled himself to learn a trade from his father. He humbled himself. He humbled himself to go to the synagogue and listen to men try to teach him the Old Testament. Can you imagine? It's as bad as me having my father-in-law in the service. I'm trying to teach, and here's a man who's preached for 30 years. Yeah, that ain't fun. That was never fun. Right? Imagine you had Jesus in the audience. <laughs> they had no idea until he stood up one day and read from the scroll of Isaiah and said, Today the scripture is fulfilled. They're like, oh, I've been teaching that kids. You can't. And they wanted to. They had, he had powdered butt syndrome. They'd known him since the very beginning. You're just Joseph's son. <laughs> Not just anything, guys. <laughs> he's just humbling himself. That's what he's doing. He's humbling himself. His whole life, he humbled himself. Even John the Baptist was like, I can't baptize you. You need to baptize me. Jesus switched places. And Jesus said, no, this must be done to fulfill all things. Jesus humbled himself to be baptized by a sinner. Are you kidding me? John knew better. And he's, can you, just put yourself in John's wet sandals for just a second, right? You're like, Jesus just said baptize me. You're like, let's do it together. Maybe you hold my nose, I'll hold yours. We'll just kind of, like, can we just, here, I'll dip myself. Like, like, how, just awkward, awkward. He baptized Jesus, probably with tears in his eyes. Like, this is not right. This is the, this is our king. I should not be doing this. He should not be humbling himself to me. I'm not worthy to unbuckle his shoe. This is not right. And that's what Peter said. When Jesus said, I'm going to die. No, that will never happen. Get behind me, Satan. Whoa. <laughs> yeah. Don't say that to your wives, guys. That ain't a good thing. Them's fighting words. But Jesus was right and Peter was wrong. Just to fix that analogy, guys, you're the ones that need to be rebuked. Just to be very clear there. You're the ones that need to be rebuked, right? There are so many paradoxes in Jesus' life, and, it, and, and Paul is crystallizing it in this paragraph. Here's why he went to the cross. He humbled himself. Here's why nobody really saw his glory. He veiled himself. Here's why you couldn't pick him out. Because he was busy serving other people. He served his family well. So well, they didn't know he was the son of God. Holy report card at home life, A. Synagogue life, A. City of Nazareth, he's not a prophet, A. He's 
nailing it. He is humbling himself so that nobody understands and knows, and he's okay with that. Are you okay with that? I would not be okay with that. You want people to know. You want it. You, you, God, will you just tell somebody? He told John the Baptist, okay, I got one friend. <laughs> and slowly he reveals himself to his disciples. And slowly they reveal him to the world. Mm. Humbled himself his entire life. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John the Baptist, with God's help, understood where this humbleness was headed. It was headed to sacrifice. And he knew it. Nobody else really got that. This is why John is considered the greatest of the prophets. Why Jesus calls him the greatest born among women. Because he got it. He got it. So let's summarize verses 5 through 8. I, <coughs> I labored over this. I've got the abbreviated version in your notes. So, The mind of Christ is contentment and trust in God without grasping which actively serves others to the point of death. That's as short as I could get. <laughs> I'm sorry. There's so much going on in verses 5 through 8. 5 through 11. And I haven't even gotten to the... I can't even go past 8 today. The mind of Christ. That's the command. Reframe your... Get, get, worried, get with me. Paul commands the church to be like Christ. Have the mind of Christ. What is the mind of Christ? Contentment and trust in God without grasping for self-desires or self-needs alone, which then actively humbles itself and serves other people to the point of death if that's what they need. He's not calling each of you to lay down your lives physically to die. But if somebody needs you to do that, you need to be willing to do that. For all of us who are alive today, God is calling you to live for other people. Lay down your life and live for those people. That's the sacrifice. If it comes to the point of death, be willing to get there. Jesus laid down his life for his family, yes. For his friends, yes. His countrymen, yes. But also, Jesus was willing to lay down his life for his enemies. Prostitutes, drunks, pagans, murderers, thieves. Pray. Insert yourself there. You. Christian, is there anybody you hate? Is there anybody you despise or talk bad about? Hmm. That's not the mind of Christ. How could he humble himself and lay down his life? He trusted God. He chose not to hate. He was too busy loving God to have room to despise his enemies. He's going to leave that. He's open-handed. He's going to take what comes, but he's also going to be taking what comes. He's open to whatever God is going to do. That's the mind of Christ. Letting God fight your battles. Letting God raise you from the dead. Letting God rebuke your enemies. 
Letting God provide for your needs, your daily bread. Letting God provide, letting God provide. Contentment and trust, contentment and trust. That's true humility. But it doesn't stop there. You don't just become a monk, go out in the desert, live on your own. Hold yourself up, go find a compound. You're supposed to actively also love God and your neighbors. Never removes that. So there needs to be an element of serving other people as well. Even to the point of death. Jesus emptied himself and served the needs of all. His sacrifice is how we know God's love for us. Jesus' sacrifice is how we know God's love for us. And that's how some other people will find God's love through you. By your sacrifice, by your humbleness, by your humility, by you laying down your life, by you veiling your rights, by you serving them even if they don't like it, even if they don't understand it, even if they talk bad about it. You're opening your hand to God and to other people, and he can do anything with that. That's what Jesus' mind was about. So, takeaway. God is very concerned with your attitude. (laughs) Right? God is really concerned with your mindset. Very concerned. And here's one way to measure yourself, your godliness, your attitude. Measure your godliness by your love for other people. Measure it. Lay it out there. Measure your godliness by your love for others. Sometimes it's more powerful for an unbeliever to see the love of Christ in us and through us rather than just hearing it from our mouths. They need to see it. Some people are not going to believe until they see God has changed you. They're not going to hear what you say until they see how you are. That's the gospel manifested. It does need to come out of our mouths. God is holy. You are not. You need Christ. And here's how you respond. By faith in his grace. Humility of mind. Humility, here's the next blank. Humility has to be deeply rooted in your belief in the person and nature of God. This is going to take some struggling, people. This is going to take some deep thinking and praying. I want to be humble. Oh, boy, oh, boy. Um, The first step in humility, humility of mind, you need to really believe that your neighbor is important. No, 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 I'm not talking about my neighbor. I'm talking about me. I need to learn to be humble. The first step in humbleness is understanding how important your neighbor is. And let's back that up a step. You can't understand how much love God has for somebody else if you don't know how much he loves you. Your personal theology, your personal understanding of who God is, of who God is, is what saves you. Is he gracious enough to forgive you? Yes. Is he kind enough to forgive you? Yes. How much? How much do you really embrace that and believe that? Because that's, that's who you today are operating out of. You're operating out of your belief system, your mindset, who God is, how he accepts you. You have to get that straight. 
before you can go be humble and serve other people. Because you will only serve them to the degree that you understand how much God loves you. If you're really shallow with other people, easy to anger, harsh, um, then we have a problem on this side of the equation. Because you do not understand how gracious and kind God has been to you. To whom much is forgiven, (laughs) they love much. To those who don't love much of their enemies, do they understand the love of God very much? See the disconnect? You can't live a life of humility and humbleness until God first humbles you and you understand you are a dirty, broken sinner. And he forgave you. Now when you look at another dirty, broken sinner, God can forgive them. That should be the instant thought. Not who they are, but who I was. Not look at them, but that's me. That's the instant. That's the connection we need to make. As lost, as bad, as drunk, as perverted as they are, that's where I would be if not for the grace of God. We need to make that instant connection. We need to know how much God has forgiven us, how God has seen us, so we can see that on other people. And then, and only then, can we truly be humble and have the mind of humility. Let me throw in a warning real quick here. I have a warning against abuse. Christians, you are not called to enable or allow other people to use you for sinful gain. Hear me very carefully. God does not call you to be a punching bag or a repeated victim of abuse. It is necessary sometimes to set boundaries and to get help from other people in setting healthy boundaries. Every situation is different, and I can't speak to your personal situation at length right now, but you need to know we have government and we have law enforcement agencies designed to protect you from evil. Use them. Christians submit to other people and we humble ourselves before other people out of our great strength not out of our great weakness christians we humble ourselves out of a position of strength and the ability to choose to humble ourselves you are not meant to be abused Sometimes you don't know where that line is. Talk about it. Get some help. Because just submitting, 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 that's not humbleness. Humbleness submits to the ultimate well-being and good of others. And if other people are not benefiting from your humbleness and your humility, you're leaving that in God's hands, yes, but you might need some help. Don't be afraid to ask for help. Jesus lived in a state of humility and obedience because of his great strength of relationship and love with God the Father. So look at verse 5 as I close and remind, I want to remind you, verse 5, so much of this is personal. I, I make the mistake very often of over-personalizing this when he says, have this attitude in yourselves. 
He's writing to the church collectively as a group of people. This is not just an individual mindset that you need to work on. This is a mindset of humility and humbleness that we need to work on with one another, humbling ourselves to help one another, volunteering for VBS, volunteering to cook a meal, volunteering to help in the nursery, volunteering in the youth group, volunteering to teach, volunteering to clean up. This is how we humble ourselves with one another. And when somebody has a need, we help meet it. And when you give, you're humbling yourself. When you serve, you're humbling yourself. This is where it starts. Man, that should be like softball, just easy toss. Starts here. Get good at it here with these people. And then then you can might be able to go out there and play some hardball later on with people who are a little different, a little more demanding. Practice on one another. This is our mindset. This is where we get it. Don't forget this. Humility and humbleness always involve uh, people. Not simply situations or events. I mean, I don't want, you don't need to confess, but I'm like, whenever I think about humility and humbleness, I, I usually naturally put myself in a situation. Oh, in that situation, I will yield. <laughs> it's people. That's who God calls us to humble ourselves before. It's people. Man, that, isn't that irritating? Couldn't he pick something easier? Could just, it's people. Oh. And you're feeling it this week. <laughs> Give me a lot of response here. Humility and humbleness always involves people. God has his finger on your life through the people in your life. Take it to the bank. Somebody irritating in your life? God put him there. God would never. Oh, time out. God loves me too much. Time out. He loves you so much that he will always bring tribulation into your life because it makes you better. Oh, wait, it should make you better. God, teach me humbleness. That is a dangerous prayer, people. Lord, increase my humility. You're about to have a bad week. Only because if you're anything like me, your heart is pretty selfish and hard and set at grasping for what you don't right now have, even if it's good. This is my basic sin. I know it so well. My heart says, take. It's good. And God says, no, wait. In the life of Jesus, we do not see him grasping. Why? Because he is waiting, always waiting for God to give him what God says he should have. Always. Jesus never once reaches out and grasps for anything He's always waiting for the Father to give it to him. Always waiting for God's timing. Always waiting for the perfect plan of the Father to unfold. Who do you want me to work with today? Who do you want me to witness to today? Bring them across my path. Give me the words. You put them there, I'll talk. You put them there, I'll heal them. You put them there, I'll feed them. You put them there, we don't have any bread. We don't have any fish. 
Hey, if God brought him and God wants to feed him, he'll do it. Hey, look, all my, my homies are on the other side of the lake. God wants me on the other side of the lake. Jesus surfs without a board. He walks across the water. Why? God said do it. Did he question? No. Whatever God calls you to do, he will enable you to do. Jesus is not grasping. Grasping is not the mind of Christ. If I could leave you with one big thought today, it's that. Stop working so hard at your Christianity. It's not a works-based religion, people. It's faith-based. It's grace-based. And I will accept what God gives me today and say, the Lord giveth, or the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Well, as we read the book of Revelation, and we get glimpses of Jesus, hmm, a lamb slain before the foundation of the world, a lion of the tribe of Judah, a king in all his glory. All his glory. Where did Jesus get that crown? Did he take it? Did he grab it? You know why he is enthroned? Because he waited and he waited and he waited and he did and he suffered and he died and God said, this is my son. Welcome back. All the glory, all the riches, all the crowns, all the kingdoms, all, all, everyone will bow their knee before Jesus. God has given him all dominion, all authority, all power, and it started right here because he didn't grasp for any of it. That's what makes him an awesome king. He didn't ask for it. He receives it. This is what will make you a king or a queen. Not grasping, not struggling, but resting in what God brings you. And he's brought you a lot of pain. Trust him. He knows. Stay open-handed. Sometimes the pain goes away. Sometimes new blessings come. Don't cling to it. Oh, boy. Don't, don't do that to your kids either. You want them to be messed up? You just grasp for them with all you've got. Watch them squirm and struggle and never want to come back. Just grasp. Just grasp. You know what happens when you grasp things? They get cold, sweaty, nasty, and they can't wait for you to let go. Stop grasping. Riches. Money. Quickest way to lose all your money is to go after as much as you can get. Quickest way to break a relationship, smother them. No, I need you. <laughs> I need God. Stop grasping. Stand with me. Let's pray to that end together today. Whatever God has brought into your life, whatever God is going to bring into your life, trust Him. Trust Him. Trust Him. God, we come to you right now and we say, help us have the mind of Christ, a mind of humility, a mind of humbleness. Teach us to humble ourselves and serve. Serve you by serving others.
love you, God, by loving the people around us. Not by doing everything they want us to do, but by doing the things you tell us to do for them. Help us, God. Rescue us from being victims. Rescue us from abuse. Help us to know where to draw the line, where to get help, but also show us where we do genuinely need to let go of our agenda and our purpose and our plans and let you take control. We trust you. Jesus trusted you, and you killed him. We trust you anyway, because you brought him back from the dead. You brought him into heaven. You have crowned him with all glory and honor. God, we are on his side. And even if you crush us, even if we suffer, help us do it with a smile, knowing you can work all things together for good. All things, each and every thing. That's our prayer. Help us to live open-handed and stop grasping. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.